Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Before we dive into things here, uh, let's just come before the Lord here again. What a great morning we've had uh, so far. Father God, you are the Holy One, the Righteous One, Perfect One, the One that cannot bear the tiniest, smallest smidgen of sin in your presence. And yet, somehow in your great mercy and love, you have chosen to save us. Not by forgetting our sin, by sweeping it under the rug, pretending it never happened, but by laying all of the sin and the guilt and the wrath that we were due upon your Son. And so we come to you this morning humble to realize what you have done for us and that now we come into your very presence and you have given us your very word. And Lord, that we can not only come to your word and understand it, but that you would even give us the desire to hear from your word. As we'll be reminded of shortly, none of us, seek after you. And yet in Christ, you have placed your Holy Spirit within us to yearn for you, to yearn for your ways, to love you, to hear from your word, and to be brought into conformity to the image of Christ. That is not something, Father, that the world wants, but you have placed the life of Christ within us. And now we get to come to your word and I pray that as we come to your word, Holy Spirit, would you just come and would you be in our midst? Would you open our eyes to see and our hearts to understand this glorious truth this morning? Would you cause us at the end of our time to be more in awe of Christ and to treasure him more than before we began? So we pray that you would be glorified this morning, Father. We pray these things in your great and most glorious name. Amen. Well, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles if you have them with you or flip to them on your phone, whichever you prefer, and turn to Romans 3. We're going to be in verses 9 through 26 here this morning. Um, if you have one of the red Bibles from the back, it is on page 941. Um, but I am grateful to be here this morning, grateful to have the opportunity to come to uh, the word of, very word of God this morning and to share and share in it with you and, and revel in it and cherish it and love it and love the one who has given it to us. Um, and for those of you, I know I know most of you, but for any who don't know me, I'm just kind of doing a quick scan of the room to see if there are any. I think most, I know most of you here, but for those of you that don't, uh, my name is Timothy Ritter, and been here in the church for close to 20 years. Came here with my family when I was about six. And uh, last August, though, departed and began training with a missions organization by the name of Two Every Tribe Ministries in South Texas, all the way on the border with Mexico. And I have been down there, uh, been a part, I'm part of their two-year training program for those who desire to be sent out as missionaries to proclaim this glorious 
gospel of Christ that we have. And as part of what they do, part of that is a two-year training program for any of those that desire to be sent. Last August, I began that, and I just wrapped up my first year, have kind of summer off to take care of various things, and return in the fall to complete the second year. Um, but that'll be enough for introduction, I think, for right now, so we can actually get into the Word. I'm um, excited when Jeff asked me a couple weeks ago if I would want to bring the Word here to you this morning, and I was even more excited then to hear. I already kind of had been thinking over a passage um, the weeks before that that had really been med- studying, meditating on, and then to hear that we were beginning celebrating the Lord's table here this morning, and I think, awesome, that's going to mesh so well with the passage I um, was already thinking about. Um, so I'm excited to dive further in just to the riches of what uh, Christ has done for us on our behalf. Um, but this morning, I want to open by, I guess, being vulnerable, if you want to say, and share a couple of recent struggles that I've had in the past few months and things that I think um, came about because I was not treasuring Christ, because I was not believing what we have just remembered this morning. I find it is so easy for to affirm the words that we've sung, to affirm the words that we hear, and even the words we're going to look at this morning, to affirm them, say, yeah, I believe, I believe Jesus died for me. But have they become a part of our hearts? Have we embraced it with our hearts? Has the reality of who we are in Christ gotten into our gut, if you will, and just totally changed who we are and how we live our life? So, um, first struggle, um, going to to every tribe, I was arriving in August, I was very intimidated because you're surrounded by a whole host of, uh, at least as I saw them then, super godly people, just committed to the word, committed to the prayer, committed to the mission of God. And I started, you know, looking at myself and thinking, man, I don't even like match up. Um, am I even saved? Like, man, these people are so like holy. Like I, I was very intimidated. And I started feeling horrible in a lot of ways. The first couple of weeks, I was really struggling with feeling like I need to perform and I need to be in the Word more and I need to match up. That was the first one. The second one is came to the end of a week recently in the past couple months where I've been struggling, you know, various sins throughout the week were kind of weighing on my heart and not really feeling like I'd done anything good for the Lord. Just like, like what did I do this week that was like, glorifying to God. Not that I was sinning at every turn necessarily, but just didn't feel like I'd done any good works, if you want to say. And uh, at that point, there was a neighbor outside that I just told him, hey, your dog is loose, and had gone out. I'd never met them before, but told him, hey, your dog is loose, wandering the streets. And I knew they were outside then repairing a fence that had been broken that the dog got through. And I believe the Spirit just lay in my heart like, you should go meet them. You should go talk to them. You've never met them before. And so I was like wrestling for like 10 or 15 minutes. Like, oh, should I? Shouldn't I? I've got stuff to do. Like, and I finally like, okay, I'm going to go down there and talk to them. So went down, started talking with them, had a great conversation. Um, I wouldn't say it was a gospel conversation, um, but came back from having talked to them feeling like, yeah, like I did something good. Like I feel like the spirit was leading me to go talk to them and I did it. And like, I feel I can kind of tamper all the sin throughout the week by, you know, doing this, finally doing something good, kind of checking off the box. And my point in bringing those up is that at their very root, at their core, I don't believe my desire in that moment was to treasure and to exalt Christ. My desire in seeking his word wasn't to be made 
brought into conformity to his image and grow deeper in love with him through hearing from his word, but it was the desire to match up to do what I think good Christians are supposed to do, especially missionaries. And the second one is, again, feeling like, man, I've done all these bad things throughout the week and not done anything good, but I finally did something good. I finally listened to the spirit of Christ and like, I feel good about that. Now, there are places for both of those things and there is reason to rejoice when we listen to the spirit of God, when we are able to resist sin. There is reason to rejoice in that, that by the power of God's spirit alone, not by anything we've done, that we can resist and we can give all praise to God for that. I guess I'm going to ask a question for you as we open is, do either of these examples resonate with you? Hopefully, you can identify with either one of those in some way, in either feeling a frustration and a guilt, as I'm prone to do, over a lack of perhaps spirituality when compared to either just myself or to other people, or we can have an irrational exuberance over the fact that we did something good, something that we feel is pleasing to God and is bringing us, somehow is bringing us closer to God, bringing us into a state of favor with God. Or it can match it up against our recent failing, saying, oh man, did really bad over here, but man, just a few minutes ago I did something really good. Or we can then compare to others. I'm not as bad as they are. Like, yeah, I sinned, but man, look what they did. My hope, my prayer for us today is that we would be brought to worship as we consider the gospel again, that we would treasure Christ. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would both bring us, convict us of where we have not truly trusted in the truth of Christ, as we'll see here, but not just to convict us, because the word of God doesn't just condemn us. It does convict. It should convict us. It should bring us to our knees in humility to realize who we are before a holy God and that we don't match up, but that it would also bring us great joy and great confidence in Christ. But before we actually get into the text here, I do just want to define one word and try and get this out of the way here. A passage we're going to look at is full of big words, and often we can kind of run over those because they sound too academic or too theological, but we don't get down to their meaning and to the great truth that is there, the great treasure that is there. And the first one, or one that I mainly want to look at here, is the word righteousness that we're going to look at. And there are a few aspects of this term I think that we should just note, we should at least keep in the back of our brain. Hopefully as we're working through the text, this will help us understand um, a little bit better. First aspect of God being righteous is we think of his moral uprightness, his purity, his faithfulness to his promises, that he never lies, that he always does what he says he will do. And God is the very definition of righteousness in his character, in his holiness. Sin is opposite all of that. He does nothing that is evil, always what is right and good. It also has the implication of being just and fair, that for God to be righteous means that he is a just judge who must punish sin. If God just forgave us and forgot about our sin, he would cease to be righteous and cease to be just. But we know that he's not that he is perfectly righteous and just. And we also think of us living, the aspect of living righteous lives, which we might simply say is living in accordance with the will of God, living in a manner that reflects him. And of great importance today, as we look at this passage, is the aspect of being made righteous, which is to be brought into a right standing, into a right relationship with God, 
And without being made righteous, we cannot live righteously. There's also another quick word is the idea of justification, being justified, which merely means God's declaration that we are righteous, declaring us righteous, him stating, you are now righteous in my sight. So let's get into the text here finally. I feel like there's a lot of introduction, but hopefully it will be helpful. Um, let me walk you briefly through the flow of Romans up to this point, the first couple chapters. Um, Paul starts off the book, he's writing to believers in Rome in the first century there, and he tells them that he's excited to come and to preach the gospel because the gospel is the good news, is God's power to save everyone who believes, Jew or Gentile, because God's in the gospel, God's righteousness is made known in Christ, and God's righteousness, that perfect standing before him, is what we need. Without that standing before God, we remain condemned and headed to an eternity separate from him under his eternal judgment. And he addresses, goes on to address those both without the law, the Gentiles, and those with the law, the Jews. And he says that both know God, either through creation, the Gentiles, see God's power put on display in creation and reject him, sure what's going on there, but no. Uh, but both know, both know God, either through creation or through his word, as the Jews had the very word of God, the very revelation of God to them. And Paul says that we reject him, we both reject him in the same way. Having the word of God or not, we reject him. So this leads us into our first section, actually into our text here. So let's get into it. And our first point that I'm calling this morning is unbelievable sin. Let's listen to Paul as he's kind of concluding his thoughts where he's gotten up to this point, starting in verse 9. Paul says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. I'm going to confess that this is not how I picture myself. When I think of Timothy Ritter, a sinner, I don't uh, jump to this text and say, yep, that's me. It's easy for me to generally think that I was pretty good before Christ saved me. I grew up in a Christian home. I read the Bible and prayed. I served at the church even at a young age. I don't think of myself as being a rebel child. Of course, that's kind of dampened now because my parents are here, so I guess they could raise objections to that. Um, but for myself, that's not how I think of myself. 
I don't think of myself as worthless. I don't think of myself as my mouth being full of curses and bitterness. I definitely don't think of my feet being swift to shed blood. Like, isn't that a bit extreme? How about you? What do you think of when you think of yourself as a sinner? Is this the picture that comes to mind? Because Paul is saying, and this is not even Paul saying this, these are a bunch of quotations from various places in the Old Testament. But this is a heavy truth, a truth that I think we should meditate on, not to become depressed over, but to elevate what we're going to see further in this text. But Paul is saying that all humans, religious or not, knowing the word of God or not, are completely opposed to God, to his authority, to his ways. It says we are completely worthless, devoid of any purpose or meaning or goodness whatsoever. The text, in a sense, tells us there's no good bone in our body. If we read this text, there, it really couldn't get any worse, not that I can think of. It seems as bad as it could get. Not only do we not possess any good, but our hearts are completely set on deception and destruction all day, every day, apart from Christ. But this is the word of God, and this is how the word of God describes our condition apart from Christ. Well, Paul continues um, to explain, and after he has laid out the depravity of man, he then goes on to explain in 19 and 20, that the law makes everyone accountable to God. No one can say anything to him. No one can say, well, look what I did, or I didn't do this, he did that, and I didn't. The law brings everyone under the authority of God. And he says that the law only shows us our sin. It reveals our sin, and that no one can ever come into a right standing. No one can be justified before God by seeking to obey the law. It's kind of like having a mirror put in front of you. You can see all that you are, at least on the outside. Let's say you have your hands tied behind your back. That mirror doesn't help you change anything. It only shows you whatever this is here. It's not pretty. But the law is helpless to save us. Paul's adamant, no works of the law will save us. Of course, you know, we stop here. Things would be pretty bleak. We've been told things couldn't get any worse. The law that shows us our flaws can't do anything to fix them. It only condemns us and shows us how wicked and worthless we are, how completely unable we are to fix anything or to be in a right standing before God, that we're in a state of rebellion outside of Christ. And Romans 5 tells us that we are enemies of God. We are actually opposing God. We're not in some neutral state. We're actually in opposition to God, resisting him. Our sin is unbelievable in that as sinful creatures, we're willing to admit we're not perfect. I don't think any of us would here would claim that we're perfect. We would admit that we do have flaws. We do things that aren't good sometimes. But when we hear of God, how God views us, as we've just read, it can seem a bit outrageous. At least as me, I'm reading that, I'm like, it seems a little extreme. We can't be that bad, can we? And the thought that, as Paul says, that nothing we do, no matter how good in our eyes, can bring us even a little closer to God? Seriously? 
You know, I went and shoveled that older lady's driveway and helped her out to her car. Like, that doesn't up my status before God in some way. I mean, it's not like I'm Stalin or Hitler or anything. I haven't killed anybody. Paul says, no, you're in a state of rebellion before Christ. That doesn't matter if you're a pagan living in unchecked depravity to the max, killing millions of people, or if you're someone that actually, you know, seeks to be a good person and seeks to help other people and love people and not out to hurt anybody. But Paul says that before God, there is no difference. And this should, if it's not already, bring us to a great state of humility, should it not? A state of helplessness before God that left to ourselves, we are literally without hope, any hope whatsoever. But praise the Lord, this is not the end of the story and there is good news ahead. So let's move to our second point, which is unimaginable grace. Continuing in verse 21, Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now there is a lot here. Again, a lot of some big words. And unfortunately, we don't have time to dig into every verse as I would like to, but we'll try and hit the high points and hopefully make some sense of what Paul is saying here and seeing the contrast of what he's just said, because he starts us off saying, but, which is he's bringing a contrast to what he's just said and describing our condition, our helplessness before God's holy standard. That we know God's righteous standard is seen in the law, but he says now in these verses, he says that this righteousness has been shown apart from the law, that it's shown in Christ, that all who trust in him by faith will receive the very righteousness of God perfect standing before the Father. He says that there is one universal human condition. All are under sin. All are under his authority. And so there is one universal solution. Trust in Christ. Jew or Gentile. Murderer or someone who wouldn't hurt a fly. We all reject God and we don't match up to the awesome righteousness and purity of God. And that one solution, again, is believing and trusting in Christ to be our righteousness for us. He goes on and he's explaining this. He says, all who trust in him are justified by his grace as a gift. Meaning we are made righteous, we are brought into a right relationship. No longer enemies with God. We're brought into a right relationship through his undeserved favor, through his grace. Nothing that we could earn. And then he says that this is a gift. I think it's important to remember this is a gift that we weren't even asking for. We can see ourselves as innocent and really desiring to obey God, but the text tells us that no one seeks after God. So this gift, it's not a gift that we even had on the wish list, you could say. And then he goes on to describe how were we justified. He says that it happened by Christ buying us back, by him redeeming us. Christ died in our place. Sin required a payment death, and he died. He paid that penalty that was required of sin. 
And not only did he purchase us or buy us back for himself, it says that God put him forward, put Christ forward, and in a sense, he's saying that God set Christ before himself, before the Father as the holy judge, as an offering, as a propitiation by his blood. And propitiation is a big word that really just means to appease the wrath. It is the idea of appeasing the wrath of a deity. That by Christ's offering, God actually made Christ the offering that would appease his wrath towards us. That there was wrath that was justly due us as sinners. But he chose rather to pour it out on Christ instead of us. And he not just only removed that wrath, but he also brought us to a place where God is actually pleased and happy with us as if sin never happened. Let that sink in for a moment that God would do that for sinners like us who want nothing to do with him. Paul says, he continues in just explaining that passage that we read through, Paul says that by God doing all of this, God was showing that he was just. In the thousands of years leading up to Christ, God, in a sense, he says, overlooked sin. Hebrews 10 tells us that the sacrifices offered in the Old Testament were only shadows of Christ and that the animal sacrifice could never atone for sin. Never. They were only pictures. They were reminders to the Jews that I'm sinful. And there's nothing that I can do. I need to die. But God has provided a substitute in that lamb, in that bull. Provided a substitute that's going to die in my place. And that was a picture of Christ who would come. So now here in Romans, Paul says that by God pouring out his wrath on Christ, it showed that he was not unjust in overlooking those sins because God the Father knew one day he would punish Christ. By pouring out his wrath on Christ, he showed that he was not sweeping sin under the rug because that would be unjust. Sin must be punished. And not only did Christ, the Father offering Christ up as an offering for us to remove the wrath that was due us, did it show him to be just in that the penalty was paid It also showed that he was the one who would make righteous all who trust in Jesus, that he would be the just and the justifier. He would remain just and he would also justify and make right all those who trust in Jesus by faith. Now at this point, if you've been hopefully following along with the text here and what Paul is saying, it could kind of look like something is not right. And that's why I titled this time here this morning's passage, What I Did, The Great Travesty Became Our Only Hope. Because if we look at this text and we think about what we've just heard, we think about that we are sinful beyond comprehension, that we are worthless, that we oppose God, that we are deserving of death for our rebellion. And then all of a sudden, God steps in and says, if you trust in Jesus, you will no longer be a rebellious servant deserving of eternal condemnation in hell, but you will be holy and perfect as if sin never happened. And you'll be my child, never to experience my wrath. In order for that to happen, I caused Jesus to die in your place as you should have and poured out the wrath that you should have received on him. When God says that, if we're looking at it logically, you could say, it looks like 
we are guilty, and now it looks like we are very guilty. This word of God is not confusing in that regard. We are guilty. We are deserving of God's wrath. It looks like, it can look like we're getting off completely free. Okay, you're punishing Jesus. He's dying in my place, but I'm still a sinner. How is God being just? Often, I think it's easy for us to run over this. I think often in our culture, we think, have this idea that God forgives and just forgets our sin as if it's not there. But he can't do that. And Paul is saying that, yes, he can't do that. But to help us make a little bit more sense of this, I want to just jump over quickly to 2 Corinthians 5.21. Don't turn there, just listen. Um, This is a verse that we probably all know um, very well, but it's a verse I know that I often blow past without batting an eye, when in reality this verse should literally shake and shatter our world when we hear what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, For our sake he, that is God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ, eternally existing with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the one who created all things, who sustains all things, the reason that you and I are breathing right now, the one so holy and so perfect that he can't tolerate the tiniest smidgen of sin in his presence, became, this verse tells us, covered in sin and rebellion, more than covered. He actually became sin. He went from the one who knew no sin, that sin was opposite everything that he is in his very being and nature. His character opposite all that it is. The thought of him possessing sin is unthinkable. And to declare God having sin would condemn you. But this verse tells us that he went from being pure goodness to becoming sin itself. The very root of sin in rebellion became, was placed upon him. The author of righteousness in a moment became the author of sin. Our sin was actually transferred to him in a way that actually made him guilty and deserving of wrath. That's what this verse is saying, is that he, he knew no sin, but he became sin itself so that we could become the very righteousness of God. Now, I've been wrestling with this for like a couple weeks, and this still doesn't make any more sense to me in some ways, other than I don't understand how this is possible. I don't understand the how or the why, other than, as we've seen from earlier in chapter 3, that there's no other way for us to be made right with God. He's made very clear earlier that no one seeks after God. By no works of the law, can, the law was not meant for as a way for us to please God or to be brought into a state of favor before him. It only condemns us. We're completely opposed to him. And if we're in this, this state of rebellion, like what is left? What is the solution? Because we can't work ourselves out of this dilemma and we don't even, apart from him, we don't even desire to. And again, we, God can't sweep in on the rug and pretend it never happened, saying, I'll forget about it. You tried your best. He has to deal with it. All the other religions of the world 
are based on the premise that you can do things to bring yourself into a good state before God through your works or through doing or through not doing certain things. God cannot do that. It would make him unjust. And he did this by, in some mysterious way, actually lifting our sin and our guilt and transferring it to Christ and then justly punishing Christ. Romans 6 tells us that in Christ's death, we were actually in some mysterious way united with him in that death. So the penalty for sin, which was death, was paid. That in Christ we died, and in his resurrection we are raised to new life. So in some way, God has made it that we are no longer debtors to sin. That God, in a sense, made Christ the ultimate debtor who bore all of our sins and paid the entire penalty for sin for all who are his. And that we are, in a sense, no longer liable for sin if we will trust in Christ alone. That is the caveat, that you must trust by faith in this. Again, I'm trying to wrap my own mind around this truth still that I don't understand. It still seems like there's something I have to add. Like, I can trust in Jesus, but like, don't I still have to do something? But it's at this point that we come to the realization that as sinners, we do not want to listen to the Word of God and what the Word of God tells us. The Word of God defines our reality for us. This passage has defined our reality, our state apart from Christ even though it's unbelievable to us and it seems crazy and wild, but this is the only authority, the only standard. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, will we believe the author of creation? Will we believe the one who is the judge, the one who is righteous, who set the standard, and he says here that he remained just because he took the sin off of you and placed it on Christ and then justly punished him. There is no more wrath for those who trust in Christ. No sin. We are brought into a perfect standing as if sin never happened to us. This helps make sense. I think of Paul's frequent in this passage, I think there's three times at least where he talks about this has to be by faith because in my mind it's simply crazy. How or why would God do this? How is this even possible? We don't, again, understand how it was done, only that God did so and in the way that he did it, he remains perfectly just. This is a grace that is truly unimaginable, unfathomable, ununderstandable. And it looks like a scandal. It looks like it's not fair. But God says, if you trust in Christ, it's all been removed. The penalty was paid. And our only hope is in Christ because there is nothing that we can do. To kind of wrap this up here, wish we could go on because this is just such a precious truth that past few days just trying to wrap my mind around it, reading it over and over again, it's just our finite minds I don't think will ever in this life completely understand this truth and if we'll understand it even in eternity, I don't know. But we'll still be praising God for it even if we don't understand it. 
So my question for you today is who are you worshiping? Whose word are you trusting in? Who or what are you setting your eyes on each day? Is it on your performance? Is it on the good that you do? Or perhaps you're wrapped up in your failings and you think, how could God ever accept me? I'm so bad. You think God will accept you because of all the good that you've done? Or that he never could because of all of your sin? The answer is the same for us this morning. Look to Christ. You may think that God could never accept you because of all of your sin. But look to Christ because he has removed. If you will trust, if you will put your faith, your whole hope and faith in him, he has covered it. And he has told you that there is no wrath left for you. God has been fully satisfied through Jesus. And if you're hoping to please God by the good things that you do, be careful. Because you're now seeking to add to the work of Christ. You're saying that Christ's work was not sufficient. There's something that you have to do, even though the author of righteousness, the one, the perfect holy judge says, this is what you need to trust and this is what you need to believe to be made right with me. And you say, nah, I think I need to, you know, serve at the food shelter every week and that'll, that'll get me over the top. I have to do something. The answer is no. Christ alone must become our treasure. And yes, we still have to obey Christ, but our obedience to Christ is now rooted, is not being overcome by guilt and condemnation when we fail. It's not thinking that we just have to do better, but treasuring Christ, treasuring the truth that we have heard this morning should lead us to obey out of love, out of gratefulness. And that's something that we're going to struggle with all our lives, sadly, sorry, spoiler, that this is not going to be easy. It's not something that's going to ever completely go away. But when we truly set our eyes on Jesus and what we've done, when we see how great our sin is, and we see the grace that he's poured out on us that should just blow us away, it causes us to worship him. Not to worship ourselves or to think that we bring something to the table. We bring nothing to the table. And so my challenge for you is that you would treasure Christ this day, that you would ask him to help you love Jesus, to not, not be just trying to do better, but to, in worship, rejoice in what he has done and let that drive every aspect of our lives. If you have not trusted in Christ alone, I would encourage you. This is a struggle that as believers we will have, but if you have not ever completely trusted in Christ, if you have not said, I can't do anything to earn your favor, I'm only in sin before you, I'm condemned to hell, but I trust in Christ, I trust that what he did was enough to pay the price for my sin. He is there, as we heard in the song, that his arms are open wide to receive you. 
And I encourage you as well as a body, as the church, to, to treasure Christ together, to encourage and stir one another up in this truth as you share your lives. And that we would also remember that this is a glorious truth that we are now in a perfect relationship with God. Even though we still struggle with sin, we know that our eternal destination is sure, that God will never pour his wrath on us. But that we would not just stop here, but then we would realize what Paul even says in Romans, that he has received grace from God, he has received apostleship from God in order to proclaim Christ to the nations. And so as children rejoice in this great truth, would that motivate us to make him known and to ask God, who have you placed around me that needs to hear this great news? Prayer that I have prayed going through this passage, I think, helps me in acknowledging the truth that is here. Simply, Spirit, help me to love and to treasure Jesus above all and to believe by faith what you've told me in, my, in your word. And to, as the cry of the father of the demon-possessed son, call out to Jesus, help my unbelief. Because even as a believer in Christ, I'm still challenged by this text. I see my frequent unbelief, still seeking to do it in my own strength. But God, having made us his children, has now placed the very Holy Spirit within us to help us, to enable us to love and to treasure Jesus. So I ask you now just to take a moment and ask the Lord what it is that you're treasuring, what it is that you're setting your eyes on each day, what's driving everything that you do in life. Take a moment and just bring that before the Lord and I'll close. There won't be any music or anything. It was kind of impromptu. But take a moment and just humble yourself before the Lord. And if you've not trusted in Christ, repent, believe, trust in him, and he will make you forever his. So take a moment and do that now. Jesus, this moment is too brief to describe our gratefulness to you and what you have done. It's beyond comprehension. And our flesh within us would say, this can't be so. There's something we have to do. We can resist your word and the truth of your word because it seems too unbelievable, too unimaginable that we could be so wicked and so worthless apart from you. And yet, you have showered your unimaginable grace upon us. So we ask that you would, wherever we are this morning, 
you're feeling weighed down by sin or thinking that in something we do, you're serving a church or reading our Bibles or doing good things that, that somehow that covers the bad that we have done. I pray that you would cause us to believe, to help our unbelief, Father. Help us to treasure Christ and to see that he is everything as we have remembered this morning partaking of your table, that we can come to your table because of only what Jesus has done. I pray for my brothers and sisters here, Holy Spirit, that you would cause them to treasure and to love Jesus as they never have before. And this truth, Lord, would not remain in our hearts for ourselves, but that we remember that you have called us to make disciples of all nations. And that you have placed your very Holy Spirit within us to empower us to love Jesus and then to make him known. So I just pray, Father, again, that you would help us as all that we are left with is help. Jesus, we rejoice and we praise you for your word. Help us to believe it. And we know that as your children, you desire to bring us into conformity with Christ and that you are working your plan out, your eternal plan to make each one of your children, all those who have trusted in Christ alone, that you will bring us into conformity with your perfect image one day and that you are helping us, that you desire to help us love Jesus more than anything. You will answer our prayer, Lord, when we pray it in faith and when we're at our weakest. You know and you are at work. And so we praise you. We pray that your name, we praise this morning and that your glorious kingdom in the name of Christ will be spread to the nations. Praise things in the great and awesome name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.